Nima Great. Um, good morning. Uh, thanks for coming back. Those of you who've come back, it's lovely to see you. Um, we're going to um, pick up again in Daniel chapter 5. Um, just a reminder, I'm taking us through the narrative sections. Uh, Robin's helping us with the second half. Um, so we're going to finish the narrative um, chunk of Daniel now. Um, but before we get into the detail, I... Um, since many of us in this room are Bible teachers and preachers, maybe um, preachers as pastors in churches, or it may be that we're teaching in other contexts, um, I thought it would be useful just to spend a few minutes talking about how we go about preparing, how we go about thinking of taking a narrative, and what practically do we do. Um, because although I want to preach to you, Daniel 5 and 6, I, I also want us together to think, how do we help each other to do this better? Because I find it really hard work. It's really hard. And my experience most weeks is I read the passage and I think, oh, this seems okay. I think I can, this seems all right. I think this is going to be okay. I start to study it and I just think, this is a nightmare. I don't know I don't know, I, I can't see your way through. And it's that bit, isn't it, where you really have to keep working and you really have to keep fighting and, and praying. And, and then, by God's grace, you get to a place of clarity where God enables you to have something to preach. And then you wake up on Monday morning, you've got to do it all again. And sometimes I find it really helpful just to listen to how other people prepare. Because I sit there doing it in my study, and sometimes I just think, what am I, is, this, is this right? It's been a long time since anyone taught me how to do it. Is this, am I doing it right? So let me tell you how I prepare. And it won't be particularly um, surprising or impressive to you, but sometimes you hear a little nugget from someone, and you think, oh, I could try that next time I'm stuck. I, I could have a go at that. Um, so this is what I do when I, um, when I start. Um, the main thing is you, you just got to get you got to get the text in your head, right? So the first thing I tend to do is write it out by hand. Um, I write it out nice and spaced out on a piece of paper, so I've got lots of room to write things around it. I find the act of writing it out um, makes me slow down and see every word, and I'll be noticing things as I go. So I tend to write it out and I'll tend to read it out particularly with narrative, because it's a story, and often the, the, the act of reading it out loud helps you to, um, to see what's going on. Um, when I'm preparing to preach on a book that I'm kind of looking slightly further ahead, I'll often read the whole book, um, record it, record me reading it, and then listen to it a lot when I'm just walking around. Um, it's quite a good way just to get yourself familiar with it. Um, I, I wouldn't do this with narrative, um, but one of the things that I'm working on at the moment, in January we're preaching the book of Galatians. Um, and so I've set myself between now and Christmas the task of trying to memorize the book of Galatians, um, which many of you will think, that's ridiculous, that sounds impossible. It's not. It's not that hard. Um, and I, I really want to... I'm not telling you this to try and make... to sound impressive. I'm trying to 
tell you ideas that you could try, um, that we could just raise our expectation a bit. See, memorization, um, we live in a we're rubbish at Bible memorization. In fact, we're just rubbish at memory altogether because now you've got a mobile phone. You don't have to remember any phone number. I used to know loads of phone numbers. When I was a teenager, it was the only way I could get around. But now, it doesn't, I don't know any. And we live in a culture where we just don't need to memorize very much. But I think the problem is that that means that we're quite weak with memories. And I, my instinct is that having a weak memory actually makes our preaching less good. I, I think when you have a good memory, when you've, when you've worked hard at memorizing things, it helps you then to preach and, and to be able to think in a certain way. Because when you're memorizing stuff, you are having to think about it and think what's next and ordering the thoughts. And I, that then helps I think, you to be a better preacher. Um, so I really want to encourage you to, to have a go at memorizing stuff. And some of you will be brilliant at this, I'm sure. But some of you may never have really tried or you may have a couple of verses. But I am persu- I'm really persuaded that you can learn big chunks of the Bible. Um, so I'm halfway through chapter 2. That's where I've got to. Um, and, you can, and it's hard. But the way I do it is I just, um, whenever I'm walking anywhere, I just, I just say it. And then it's really cool because you're walking down the street and you're talking scripture. And then as you're talking scripture, you then are able to worship God and to say, wow, thank you that the grace that was at work in the Apostle Paul is now at work in me. And it becomes a, so much better than listening to mindless podcasts. Anyway, I'll stop ranting about that. Um, but you're just trying to get the text familiar is my point. Any way that you can do that, um, listening to it, reading it, writing it, all of that sort of stuff. And then, and then you just want to notice things. This is my favorite bit of sermon prep. The bit where you just go through, you're noticing things. You're spotting and you're, you're looking for different um, words and you're looking for all the repeat. You know all the stuff we were taught, right, when we were learning? <laughs> the stuff you guys um, who are just starting out, you, you're being taught this stuff. Look for the repeated words. Look for the big things. Let's not lose sight of doing that. Let's not despise the simple things. Um, now, again, here's something I do. I, I, I'm not saying this is what you should do. I'm just saying this is how I do it because it might help some of you. I do this particularly when I get stuck. I've got into the habit. So this is, this is my sermon prep um, book. It's, it, I mean, it's a mess. Um, but I've got into the habit of, rather than just noticing things and writing them down, I will, I'll write all of it in the form of prayers. So I'll write, rather than just say, um, verse 7 says that God is gracious, I'll write, Father, thank you that verse 7 says you're gracious. And the reason I do that is because I am constantly wanting to say to myself, this is not an English comprehension exercise. This is an act of dependence and prayerful humility for God that says, I need you to reveal it. We've already seen in the book of Daniel, it is God who's the revealer of mysteries. When Daniel in chapter 2 didn't know the king's dream, he didn't sit down and say, let me see if I can work it out. He prayed. And so the way that I, 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 I don't always do this, but the way I try and do it is, is in that attitude of prayerfulness, I, I notice things, and, and therefore my sermon prep book is a book full of prayers. 
And in some ways, that's no different to, I've noticed that verse 7 says that God is gracious. But there's something in my heart that's different when I interact that way. In fact, I mean, you'd laugh if you looked at some of the things. I will write things in, in here that says things like, Holy Spirit, I do not understand why verse 6 is there. Please show me. I'll, I'll write that out in my sermon, perhaps. Now. <laughs> Again, I just say that to you as, as a, some ideas, and, and perhaps when you're stuck, you could have a go at that. Um, so you're trying to get the text familiar. It's fun. You notice all sorts of links. You follow little rabbit trails. Oh, this is interesting. Does this place name come up anywhere else? Oh, it does. It comes up here. Is that significant? And you follow it for a bit, and then you go, maybe it's not. All that sort of stuff. It's quite exciting, right? You're exploring, and you're enjoying this wonderful text that God has given us. But then I think the hardest bit of sermon prep is that bit when you've got all those ideas, and you've got all those thoughts, and you're excited about different things, and it's the bit where you've got to get to what you're actually going to say. And it's that communication bit that I think is often the hardest. That's the bit I struggle with. And that's the bit that takes most of my time. And it's the bit I work hardest at because I'm convinced it's the bit that the people I'm about to preach to really need me to do the work on. And so what we're trying to do in that moment is to think, how, what, is, what is God saying to his people through this part of Scripture today? And we've done all the work on what is it that God was saying to his people when it was first written, the original hearers, the author's original intent, those things matter, those things we've been taught. And then how do I communicate that to the people who will be in front of me on Sunday morning? And this is where I think we need to engage some godly imagination. We need to be a little bit creative. We need to think and work hard at that section. This is what um, we've said several times, and Robin said this yesterday, this idea of preaching stories like they're epistles, (laughs) that we can almost begin to think, I'll just squeeze it into a kind of a nice logical framework. Do you know, here's an interesting thing for you to chew on. Um, you know how often we think that science and God are big enemies? Actually, our churches are full of scientists and engineers and mathematicians. And if you go to London, the biggest, univer- the biggest Christian unions are at the science um, universities, imperial. And certainly the, the more academic universities. The the more academic a university is, generally speaking, the bigger the Christian union is. Why? Where are the smallest Christian unions? In London, they're at the arts colleges. You go to an arts college, there's barely anyone. I was asked to go and speak at um, UAL, uh, Arts College in London, and I turned up. There was three people there (laughs) in this massive university of 10,000 students. Three of them. And I think that really should make us consider as preachers, is it possible that we are not communicating the gospel well to a vast chunk of our society? I live right behind the Tate Modern. Um, Have you been to the Tate Modern? How many people have been to the Tate Modern? Right. How many people hated the Tate Modern? Sorry, don't put your hand up because I'm about to... (laughs) 
Look, I hated Tate Modern. I went and Tate Modern. I thought, this is stupid. This is totally stupid. What a complete joke. There are things here that I could have made. This is ridiculous. But here's the deal. The Tate Modern is the most popular tourist attraction in London. Which means you've got to understand why. What is it about the Tate Modern that people love, millions of people love? And if we refuse to engage with the arts, if we refuse to engage with a creative way of thinking, we are refusing to speak a language that millions of people in our culture love. I think that that should make us stop and consider. And surely narrative is one of the places where, where people who have a creative, a love for the creative arts, should really find a connection, right? Now, that doesn't mean we all have to be, uh, you know, fascinated by the Tate Modern or whatever. But I would challenge you to, if you were a missionary in another country going to a tribe somewhere, you would work really hard to get to know their culture and understand it, even if you didn't love it. I, I, I want to encourage you to really push and to look and to think about what's going on in our culture and to, to see it, and to learn together. And that means, I think, to, to use some imagination, to use some creativity. Now, let's not go too far. Um, you know, we, we, the trouble with narrative, isn't it? You can begin to be too imaginative, right? You can begin to read too much there. I remember going to a kids' group once, and this lady did a lovely talk on Zacchaeus. And she told us all about how Zacchaeus had been bullied as a child. And uh, he'd had a really tough time. And that was why he was so unkind to people. I sat there thinking, what are you talking? There is a danger, okay? Let's not go beyond the scripture. But there's definitely a danger of not going anywhere near actually telling the story. So that's what I want. In terms of our preaching, let's think and let's be creative um, in the way we communicate. Um, And I want to try and show you that in Daniel 5 and 6. Now, um, and what I want to do is take you through these two chapters. Um, we'll see some great truth along the way. I'll probably accidentally start preaching because you, know, you can't not do the preaching. But I'm trying to show you stuff as well. It's a weird kind of double thing going on when we do these sessions. Um, but in, here's, here's two ways to think about it. In Daniel 5 and Daniel 6, Daniel faces two trials. In Daniel 5, he tra- faces the trial of obscurity. He faces the trial of obscurity. In Daniel 6, he faces the trial of hostility. And so we'll see those two trials. So have that in your mind as a framework. Or here's another framework. And this is what I mean about trying to be a bit creative. Um, there is a shape to these two stories. And the shape, here we go, um, the shape of Daniel 5, when you look at King um, Belshazzar, the shape of Daniel chapter 5 is what you might call the slump. <laughs> right, it's this shape. It goes up a little bit, then down. That's the shape of Daniel 5. That's, Daniel, that's Belshazzar's experience. Ooh, the slump. Daniel 6 has a different shape. It's what you might call the swoosh. Daniel 6 goes down, up. So it's either up, down, or down, up. You got this? 
Right, so this, this symbol, the swoosh, is the symbol of Nike, right? So this is like, this is why Nike have chosen this as their great slogan, because this is a great image. You know, the, the word Nike is the Greek, word, uh, the Greek word for victory, right? To him who overcomes in Revelation, to him who Nikes. That's why it's, they're called them. So they go for the swoosh. What company has chosen the slump as their symbol? No one, because that would be a stupid symbol. <laughs> Because no one likes a slump. Everyone wants a swoosh. Now, you could get these two images in your mind and then use those two ideas, very, very visual, to help people go through the story. Let me show you what I mean. Let's, let's get into the detail. That was a long, old introduction, but there we go. Right, chapter, chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Now... King Belshazzar's king, Nebuchadnezzar, we saw his story yesterday, his dramatic um, humbling. And it, we would be tempted to kind of go, oh, look, there's a new king. But it's quite out of the blue, isn't it? What happened to the Nebuchadnezzar? Is this a seamless transition? Actually, in history, this is not seamless. There's a whole heap of political mayhem between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Belshazzar is not the direct son of Nebuchadnezzar. He is a descendant of, an ancestor of, but when it talks about father, it's why the footnote says he's the ancestor or successor. And remember, we saw yesterday in Daniel 7 that it was in the first year of Belshazzar's reign that Daniel saw his vision of the Son of Man. So keep that in mind. Daniel's already got has seen this vision of this son of man who will reign. And now we're in the narrative, we've got to King Belshazzar, and here he is. He's giving this great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drinks wine with them. Um, staggering exuberance, indulgence of power. Here's a man intoxicated with power. At the top of his game, a thousand of his nobles... And look at verse 2. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. If Nebuchadnezzar was bad, then Belshazzar is worse. Nebuchadnezzar took those items from the temple of God and put them in the temple of his God. Belshazzar now takes them from the temple of his God and uses them to indulge in pagan idolatry and partying. There is a downward trajectory of sin. But here is a man who who appears to have everything. Here is a man who is engaged in idolatrous worship, indulging in power and revelry. He looks like he's got everything. But then suddenly, (laughs) I love this, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. What a bizarre thing to happen. And it is a reminder to us, we are dealing with the supernatural. We mustn't be ashamed of that. We are dealing with a God who steps into this world and acts in ways that we might not expect. 
And he acts in ways to stop human sin and human exuberance, to stop that trajectory. Here is Belshazzar, and it looks like he's awesome. It looks like he's high and lifted up. But now this hand appears to stop him in his tracks. But the genius of what God does in this moment with his hand is that he doesn't write something on the wall that Belshazzar could understand. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't write it in the Babylonian language so that Belshazzar can read it. He writes something, a hand appears. He goes to all the trouble of making a hand appear to write something that can't be read. Because once again, God is going to expose the folly of human pride, the folly of human ignorance. And Belshazzar, just like Nebuchadnezzar before him, turns to the wisdom of his day. He causes all, calls all his wisest people. He says to them in verse 7, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck. And he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more afraid and his face became more pale. His nobles were baffled. So there's this freaking out suddenly this party that seemed to be so awesome he stopped in his tracks until the queen probably the queen mother speaks she hears the voice of the king and his nobles came into the banquet hall may the king live forever they still haven't learned don't be alarmed don't look so pale there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him what an amazing thing for her to say there is someone in, there's one man in your kingdom. He's in your kingdom. In the time of your father, he'd found, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king. Decades have gone by since Nebuchadnezzar. What's Daniel been doing? Who knows? He's been living in obscurity. He's not invited to the big party at Belshazzar's place. He's not part of the in crowd. He's who knows what he's doing? He's fallen out of favor. He's unknown to the ruler. He who was so significant in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, as a young man, he challenged Nebuchadnezzar and saw Nebuchadnezzar's life turned around. He must have been so excited, but since then it's all just faded away and fizzled out, and now he's living in obscurity. That's quite a challenge, isn't it, to live in obscurity? We love to be known. We love to be at the center of the action. Daniel's not at the center of the action in Babylon for decades. We don't know exactly how long, but for many, many years. He's sitting there. And don't you think there's part of him that thinks, what am I doing? I'm twiddling my thumbs. What am I doing? And I really want to say, I want to say to probably many of you sitting here who perhaps feel like it's all a bit... Obscure, you know, no one really knows what you're doing. It all feels a bit small and insignificant. It doesn't feel like the center of the action. It feels a bit unimportant. Actually, faithfulness and obscurity is deeply, deeply pleasing to God. 
Can I say, let me just talk to you guys who are younger particularly. Um, because this is a, a, a particular challenge, I think, for younger guys, which certainly was a challenge for me. I remember going to a conference once, and I was sat at an early morning prayer meeting, and I was sat in a little group. You know, you get chucked in these little prayer meetings with people you don't know, and I was praying with these two guys. <laughs> and this old, old man, I mean, he was very old. He prayed, God, please help me to be faithful to the end. And I sat there and I just thought, I don't even know your name. I don't know who you are. And yet you've been faithfully preaching Jesus and loving a church somewhere. And here am I, in all my arrogance, wanting people to notice me, wanting to be asked to do things, wanting to be asked to speak at this, and wanting to be known as... I just thought, honestly, in that moment, the pleasure I felt, almost the the tangible pleasure of God for that man. It was very moving. And I want to say, let's not be people, let's not be men who pursue fame. Let's be men who are willing to embrace obscurity. And let me say to those of you who are older, and those of you who have been faithful, praise God and thank you. It means more than you know. And there are you are modeling to younger men faithfulness and obscurity. But having said that, let me just put in a caveat. <laughs> because what Daniel is not doing is just plodding along. See, the other thing that happens when I go to, F- to leaders' conferences, you talk to someone, you go, how are you doing? They go, well, I'm plodding. I'm, you know, we're plodding on. Which I get. But there are two ways to plod, aren't there? That could be a new evangelistic tract. Two ways to plod. <laughs> um, there, are, there are two ways to plod. There, there is a way of plodding where you just sort of accept that everything's small and you've lost all ambition and you go, oh, this is it. I'll just keep preaching and I'm, just, oh, I'm plodding on. You've lost any sort of joy in ministry. You're just kind of plodding and plodding. And if, if something big was to happen, you probably wouldn't notice because you're too busy plodding. But there are the other plodders. And Daniel, you see, when Daniel, he's in obscurity, he's plodding along, he's keeping going, he's faithful. But the moment, the moment that God needs him, the moment there is work for him to do, he's ready, you see? He's not become so cynical and so kind of, oh, fine. I'll just do my job in my small little corner. He's ready for what God has for him. So that when Daniel is brought in, he's not freaked out by it. He's ready because he's been faithful for all those decades. So let's be those who, yes, we faithfully plod, but we're expectant that God is going to do stuff and God is going to work. And God has work for us to do. So verse 13, Daniel is brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I think that's very, very uh, patronizing uh, um, and demeaning. Oh, are you one of those exiles from Judah? Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Basingstoke, that's sort of, sorry, if you're from Basingstoke. It's all right, we're in Northern Ireland, it's all right. In England, I get in trouble for that. Um, There's this kind of despising of 
What good are you going to be able to do? All the wisdom of Babylon couldn't read this, but you, are you going to be able to do this? Let's jump down to, um, to verse 17. Belshazzar offers him all this stuff. King David, Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Here he is again. I don't want your trappings. We saw this yesterday. I don't want it. I'm not interested in your power and your status, but I will tell you what the writing means. <laughs> And then rather than telling him what the writing means, he just preaches him a sermon. Look what he says. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his, deposed, <laughs> disposed. He was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, although you knew all this. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. There are a thousand of the nobles of Babylon, Belshazzar, And Daniel preaches that sermon. How does he have that courage? Because he's already seen the vision of Daniel 7. He already knows that there is one like a son of man. And so he's not impressed. And he says to Belshazzar, you knew all this. You rejected it. And so here is Belshazzar in all his pomp and all his height. And human pride always leads to the great slump, to the great downward trajectory towards death. And so he reads the inscription. He tells them this is what it means. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Human pride always leads to a crash. And Belshazzar's response Completely ignores it. (laughs) He makes Daniel third in command, gives him a gold chain, proclaims him the highest ruler in the kingdom. That's ridiculous. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of Babylonians, was slain. And that's the end of the Babylonian empire. Do you see the big slump? You see, here's what you need to know if you're in obscurity and you feel like the world, you know, there seems to be so much power. This is Psalm 73. I looked at the, the prosperity of the wicked. I see how powerful they become. And then I understood their final destiny. The downward slump. If you pursue human power, if you pursue human pleasure and human status, it always ends with a slump. It just doesn't last. Everything in our world is that shaped. Everything. Which brings us to chapter 6. And not much time. I'm going to assume you know the story of Daniel and the lion's den. But what I want to show you is that this is a resurrection story. 
That's what's going on in Daniel 6. It's resurrection. You see, Daniel is faithful. Daniel is righteous. He is set up as the righteous one, the faithful one, who even under the face of great hostility continues to pray towards Jerusalem, continues to have a heart that is loyal to Yahweh the Lord, who continues to pray, continues to trust, continues to do what is right, even when his enemies oppose him. And through deceit and deception and through slander and false accusation, Daniel is thrown down into the lion's den, into the place of death. And a large stone covers the entrance to the den. That's verse 17. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring. You see, the proud want to go up. The righteous find that they go down. But just as certainly as the proud go up, then down, just as certainly the righteous go down and then go up and are vindicated. And so this pattern is being set. And Darius, who's the, now the king, he didn't want to kill Daniel, but he'd been trapped and tricked by those who hated Daniel. And so verse 19, at the first light of dawn, early in the morning, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouth of the lions. They've not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the lion's den. There it is, you see, swoosh. Down into death, lifted up. It's victory. And that pattern is repeated over and over and over again in the pages of the Bible. When the righteous suffer, they always are vindicated. You know when the New Testament said, you know when Jesus seems to assume that his disciples will know that he will rise from the dead? He's like, haven't you read the scripture? That Jesus would suffer and then be raised according to the scripture. And you go, okay, well where? where are there are a couple of, you know, maybe there's a couple of references that maybe kind of point that there might be a resurrection coming. It's everywhere. The whole pattern of the Bible is when the righteous suffer, they suffer and are vindicated. They swoosh through death to life. That's the pattern. So when you see the righteous, when, when you see the Holy One of God, the only perfect man who's ever lived, the man who was more faithful than even Daniel, when you see him hanging dead on a cross, when you see him suffering for, and, and gasping for air, when you see him breathe his last, you should be waiting for him to come up again. Because that's the pattern. Resurrection is woven into the Bible story. And in fact, resurrection is actually woven into every human heart. Let me just finish with this, because I, I, I really do think this is um, helpful for us to see. 
Every person that you meet is longing for resurrection. This is why we all want a swoosh, not a slump. Um, Let me show you what I mean. In 2008, when there was a financial crisis, um, what do you think happened to lottery sale tickets? Do you think they went up or down? Of course they went up. Because otherwise I wouldn't be saying it. <laughs> why? Why would, we, why would we spend more money playing the lottery when I have less money? Because the lottery offers you resurrection. The lottery is able to take you from here to here. Okay, X Factor. Why do people go on X Factor and sing in front of Simon Cowell? I believe I can fly. I believe I can touch the fly. They, they humiliate themselves on national TV. Why? Simon Cowell has the power of resurrection. This is why the stories that we love best are, I used to stack shelves in Asda. My life was so empty and meaningless. But now, that's resurrection. That's the shape that we're longing for. It's the shape that stirs us. It's the shape that moves us. It's the shape we yearn for. And we may say, well, I'd never play the lottery or go on X Factor. Yeah, but we still long for it. And people in Northern Ireland across this island are desperately looking for something that will take them from this rubbish, meaningful, meaningless life to something more. If I could just get a better job, if I could just find the right marriage partner, if I could just emigrate to Australia or leave Australia and come here, I don't know anything that will help me to go from death to life because we think that that's where life is found. And the tragedy is there is no resurrection. All there is is a slump in this world. So I get my dream job, and it's fantastic, and it's fantastic, and then I get bored, and then I'm demoted, and then someone comes along, and they're better than me, and then I'm dead. Only Jesus is the one who has gone through death itself to life forevermore. Only Jesus offers resurrection. Which is why, even in the face of the most intense hostility, loyalty to Jesus is still the wisest way to live. So everybody in this world is living on one of those two curves. Everybody in this world. Everybody in this room. Either that proud slump down or that righteous slump swoosh through death to life. Because as we now cling to Jesus, as we are found in Jesus, as we are united with Jesus, his story becomes our story. Do you know what I deserve? My pride, the sin of my heart, I deserve to slump to death and to punishment in hell forever. I deserve that. I deserve exactly what Belshazzar had. But Jesus went through death, went through the lion's den of death to life forevermore so that he could take me there too. Oh, brothers and sisters, be faithful. Be faithful to this great king. Be faithful to this hope. And if you labor all of your life in obscurity, or if you face intense hostility, be faithful. Because there is a son of man who reigns forever. Why don't we pray?
Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that in your word you give us what we need to know. And Lord, we're sorry when we're so easily taken in by the trappings of this world and we think that somehow pride is going to get us what we want. Father, help us to see that you bring down the proud, that the proud slump to everlasting punishment. But Lord, thank you. Thank you that the righteous are always vindicated. That your purpose and your pattern and your plan for your people is that we will go through death to life itself forevermore. Father, please, give us that faithfulness of Daniel. Give us that loyalty of Daniel. That faithfulness of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Nima.